0: It's been over a year now since In The Key of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap unaware
1: of my proclivities to self-sabotage
0: to country so kiss me soul and rock. So, yeah. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts.
2: Nobody will ever buy music sung by a man singing about other men. It just will not sell, period. No discussion. Let's not trial it. Let's not discuss it. It's not going to happen.
0: I'm Dan Hall. I'm a gay man and I love my music. However, I've spent my life translating heteronormative content into my own story. So I'm speaking with queer musicians from around the world who mirror and inspire my queer journey. Welcome to In the Key of Q. Across three albums, Matt Fischel has produced a catchy blend of Europop and Green Day rock, and nestled in his great melodies and fantastic harmonies, are proudly queer lyrics that aren't afraid to tackle difficult and controversial subjects. Matt, welcome. Hello! So then for those who don't know you, who is Matt Fishel? I came bouncing out of a
2: uh, performing arts school, I went to Lipper um, in Liverpool, um, ready to like take on the world and to get a record deal and to get a publishing deal and I was incredibly shocked off the bat when um, I got a few, I landed a few really good meetings with, some, with basically most of the major labels in the UK at the time and one by one they all started saying the same things to me. It was, it was always men. It was always middle-aged men in in large, large, large rooms with one huge chair that they were on and me on a small chair. And they would all listen, you know, and they'd like be nodding away and looking kind of like, hmm, like you could see them looking kind of off into the distance, thinking what they could do with these songs. And then every single one of them basically said to me, Great melodies. You've got a good voice, uh, you obviously are very good at telling stories with your words, but you've got to cut the gay content. Nobody's going to buy it, nobody wants to hear it, and it needs to go. From their perspective, they would always push it that art has to sell, and you can make all this great art all day long, but if no one's going to buy it, no one's going to buy it, and nobody will ever buy music sung by a man singing about other men. It just will not sell, period. No discussion, let's not trial it, let's not discuss it, it's not going to happen.
0: What, not even to other gay men? The
2: discussion was always, and whenever I would bring that up, the discussion was, it's such a small, minuscule percentage of a buying audience that we don't care. We're interested in the big, big, big money, and the big money is not with the gays. I mean, I just would sit there, like, incredulous, just every time, just be more and more, like, down as I would come out. And I feel like each time I left one of those meetings, just another piece of me was chipping away. And I was just thinking... But I'm gay, and I would have spent my hard-earned money or whatever when I was younger on this music if it was out there. Like, I was like, I would buy this. Why are you telling me no one will buy my music? And so I was faced with a choice really early on. Do I do as i was told i had recommended to me and remove all descriptions about gay relationships and remove all the pronouns to males and make all my songs generic so i was like why would i change and dull down my experiences or use clever metaphors and subtle uh, subtle imagery to help people so people have to read between the lines when i was like i am proud and i want to express that and i realize i'm gonna have to just do this myself
0: But were you coming out of those meetings feeling disillusioned because you were tempted?
2: Uh, um, <laughs> I don't think I, I, I yes, sometimes I, I did. And, and even, you know, friends and family at times would say, you know, don't you just want to, you know, give up the whole gay thing? And just... But then I just, there was always something deep inside of me that realised that where I found my happiness was making that kind of music. And I just never really wanted to have a massive hit single about a girl or about uh, or singing about something that I knew wasn't really what I wanted to say. I just I, I I felt uncomfortable that it didn't sit easy with me. And like I said, I've always loved the artists that I felt had integrity and I felt like it would be selling
0: out before I'd even done anything. There's a, an interview with Paloma Faith in the podcast, How I Find My Voice where she talks about an incident where her American record company really loved one of her singles. They were like, this is going to be the song that breaks you in America. Could you just do one thing for us? On your music video, you're kissing a black man and we need you to reshoot it. I mean, that's just f- fucking racist and despicable. And
2: I wish I could say I was shocked, but it doesn't surprise me at all. This, the assumption that you have to put um, profit before art is one thing but the assumption that a buying and a listening audience are racist and therefore proves your point is just yeah it's it's horrendous (laughs) it's horrendous i i would say i'm shocked but i've had it with the gay thing for my whole life you know that sucks for her i hope she
0: stuck to her guns oh totally she did she did and she said you know how can i make money off the back of this it is dirty money yeah yeah
2: I was a really like optimistic and happy and kind of positive and excitable like young kid, like up until about the age of like eleven or twelve. And I was always singing and dancing and performing and I just thought that's what everyone did. I mean, I was obsessed with Madonna. She was my world back then, and I I'm glad about this, but I question in retrospect its appropriateness. But I used to watch uh repeatedly from the age of nine, probably once or twice a week, nonstop, uh, truth or dare, or in bed with Madonna, as we call it here. What a movie. <laughs> and as you well know, all of the, the, the gay scenes, the pride march in the middle, but then Slam and Gabriel kissing at the end. I always knew and had no understanding of that was what I loved about the film. And so that was always there. But then I naively then went through living my life you know, up until maybe the age of 12, probably being really camp and quite obviously...
0: Going...
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And wanting to do all the kissing with my younger friends and stuff. But instinctively just knowing that I kind of couldn't and never really grasping why. It wasn't like, oh, you can't be gay. I didn't know the word gay men, I had no idea. Anyway, and then obviously, you know, puberty hits. And then I started dating girls like all the other boys in the year did. My secondary school was a uh, school for just boys. And it was a very repressive school, very strict, very, you know, very strong uniform codes. And, you know, even in the summer, you couldn't take off your blazer, even if it was boiling hot. And I basically just constantly rebelled. I was always in trouble. I was always angry. I was always frustrated and essentially always really sad and repressed but then I, was, I started to become bullied quite a lot and I almost had that joy kind of bullied out of me. I then became a bit of a recluse and I kept myself to myself at school and I didn't really want to talk to anyone and I shied away from life for a bit and I got um, I had a really bad experience in town where I got really seriously beaten up in Nottingham and then I became by a gang that I didn't know and then I became a total recluse. I didn't leave the house or talk to anyone and then I discovered alternative rock music. And that kind of became my crowd. And then the kind of the quiet boys at school who were into that, who I'd never really been friends with before, from around the age of 14, 15, I kind of gravitated towards. Those also were the boys that were more open minded and they're more cool, and They were into like Nirvana, who famously said, you know, anyone who's homophobic can't be our fan. And all, all along the while, outside of that horrible, repressive boys school environment, I was finding outside of school people to, you know, experiment with and do things with. And it was a very dangerous world because you never know if you're going to get a smack in the face or if somebody's going to rip off their trousers.
0: (laughs) That sense of that mild threat constantly that we can face reminds me a bit of those people who, who pretend to be friendly, but say things like, oh, you know, it's fine what you're doing behind closed mm. doors, you know, just keep it there. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I think we all, as, uh, as queer people,
2: um, have heard this, which uh, at some point in life, which is essentially this idea that like, yeah, yeah, I'm cool with you. Like, that's absolutely fine. Like, I've got no problem as long as I don't have to see it, as long as you don't push it in my face. You know, like, yeah, you can be gay, just like, I don't want to know about it. And somehow people who say this think that they are doing some service to humanity they're so like they're so wonderful and generous and kind by allowing you to be yourself so long as you don't you know um, upset them
0: with the visual of this disgusting act of like kissing another boy it it reminds me of when people used to say to me when did you realize you were gay and my stock answer to that always is it's not about realizing you're gay it's about realizing that other people think it's wrong
2: yeah Uh, that yes that's a really good way of putting it i was horny for other boys I was personally cool with it. You're absolutely right. What happens is you start to pick up very quickly and it's very subtle, but you, I think I've realized in retrospect that it's constant in every area of like heteronormative society. You pick up the vibes that who you are is not considered okay by the mainstream and that you don't fit in and that other people don't like what you do. And that's an incredibly hard thing to balance when you're just finding out who you are because you have to suddenly relate to the world in a way that it seems like your straight peers are not having to do, which is that you're having to work out how you fit in, where you fit in, and where your tribe is when it's not really apparent to
0: you. Absolutely. And this is why the podcast, in a way, is about this. It's why it's so important that we see our own selves reflected back in our world. so important. I was i was desperately
2: clinging all the time when i was younger for some kind of um identity or to find to find hidden meaning between the words and to to, to find something to latch onto to to be like no this person gets it this person though no, they're singing about my experience this is but It really wasn't there, and it wasn't. It wasn't blatant. Some artists, you know, you have to. Some artists um, were doing it and were brave and were bold and were brazen, but they were lambasted, and it was very difficult. It's easy, you know. Some I've heard people before criticizing other artists being from, like, say, the seventies or eighties or nineties for not coming out. And whilst it would have been great and really helpful, you know, for people like us to have those people there, their careers were constantly threatened by the very people who were keeping them, you know where they were so that's not saying that everything has to be completely blatant and you know in your face and if you don't say I love him as a male artist then you can't connect with your gay following obviously um but representation is key it's so so important to feel represented and that's why I've always had respect for artists who even though they may not have been gay themselves they brought gay people into their work and into their world unashamedly and so that people like us had someone to look up to you know, Madonna was one of those people and people forget that now about Madonna but when it was not okay and not acceptable to promote the the brilliant side of gay life she was out there doing it
0: yeah and you get those people who say things like oh things were different then and I just think Saju you, you know if you're behaving like mm-hmm. an asshole yeah yeah
2: I suppose when I was maybe 12, 13, I first uh, got MTV and I first started seeing bands like Green Day and uh, well, American rock bands, basically, and that whole scene. It was just post-Nirvana. So, like, I was aware of Nirvana, but I was too young. To me, it was just, like, you know, angry, loud noise. Obviously, since then, I came to appreciate Nirvana in retrospect. But long story short, I was a rock and a punk kid. I was really inspired by that kind of music because, I, but because I was so into Prince and Madonna... And that kind of like sexual pop music the two things kind of combined around the age of 13 14 and then i just
0: went into kind of like guitar music overdrive sorry sorry to interrupt you there i've got to ask as a prince and madonna fan what did you think of love song as in track three on like a prayer um okay
2: the honest truth
0: is As a kid, I would always skip
2: it, and I got confused and distracted
0: by it, and I didn't really want to listen to it. Did you think it was a genuine collaboration or something that their shared record company just kind of threw together to mix the fan base? I actually don't know. I feel like Prince is a musician
2: musician, and so I feel like he probably came to the table with a song, and Madonna's probably like, cool, okay, That's not to undermine her influence, but it's a, to me, it's a very Prince song. It's very, um, musical the way that the way that the, especially the backing vocals in that track, so much of that song is very, very Prince. I hear a lot
0: of him and I just hear Madonna's vocal. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. It it does feel a bit like Prince is in the studio making a record and Madonna's just popped her head round the door.
2: Yeah. But also it's a really, really cool thing to be on like a prayer, I think. It's it's a totally different like and then it's followed by I think it's um uh, it's till death do us part. Yeah, which I the, love. Uh,
0: yeah. Which I really love. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, with the glass smashing and I I Okay, so that was the long answer. The short answer is, as a kid, I hated it. As an adult, I love it.
1: As I'm walking in the rain with my hand held high, my phone starts ringing. I saw him again another seven times, and I still hold on to the that-
0: Now, Matt, I grew up in suburban North London, and I loved listening to my Debbie Gibson and my Wet 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 and my Stock and Waterman. But they were ultimately all songs about Mm -hmm. straight life, and I never ever heard my own queer story back at me. Your album, Not Thinking Straight, suddenly was the teen album I never had. Well, firstly, thank you very much for saying that, and that really it it, it means a lot to me because essentially
2: that's what I set out to do. That's the album I wanted to write that was essentially detailed songs about queer suburbia and my upbringing in a place that was not a very gay friendly place, i.e., Nottingham. There was no scene for me in the '90s as a teenager in Nottingham that I could find. Every gay experience I had and there were quite a few don't get me wrong like I had I had a great time but it was always behind closed doors it was always desperately yearning for the next time you could be near somebody and touch somebody all the time your friends around you as I'm sure you experienced are all having a great time in heterosexual ways with their other friends and it's so difficult to be young and to feel like constantly horny and constantly Open to meeting people and to having sex and having a good time and just not being able to express it and so having to be repressed and having to find it in secret. This is how many, 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 many of us out there have experienced life.
0: As a gay gentleman myself, who quite possibly is above the age of 21, there's a song of yours I wouldn't mind having a chat about. Let's hear a clip first.
2: Well, okay, Twinks. (laughs) Twinks, for me, is a cautionary tale, I suppose, um, about what happens or or how one shouldn't place looks and youth as being the sole important things that are going to get you by in life. Do you think this really is a problem in gay culture? If you'd asked me that question ten years ago, my answer might be slightly different, but now I would say it's a problem in all culture. Lots of time people will, like... Um, express like disgust at people's age, like you know, you can't kind of think that. Like, oh my god, he's like thirty; it's disgusting. And it's like as if like somehow you would like you disappear and die. And you know, when you when you hit a certain age, uh, I do think it's a problem. I think it's a problem of self-esteem and um, you know how how we value ourselves as well as judging other people. Like you know, it's that age-old thing: what you say about others is really what you're saying about yourself. And don't focus so much about. You know about looks body image all that kind of stuff as being the sole thing of course it's important we all like hot people and we all you know we all want to be hot and we all want to be young and all of this but there are other things in life i suppose as well as just the way we look and how we have sex you're going to get older you're going to look different you're going to change and you're going to have to find a way to find happiness with that Everything I do is always very visual and it always has been because I I write from the, I suppose, from the perspective of short films. Um, So when I'm writing a song, the lyrics and the melody and everything, to me, I'm seeing the story. I would love all my songs to have a short film music video because that's really how they're written in my head. So what I've tried to do as an independent artist is... I try to make as many music videos as I can for each album for these songs that I or for the singles um, within my means. So, yeah, football songs where it all started for me, it was my first official single as a as an artist running my own label that I put out myself. And oh, I just wanted to recreate that experience of of um, being a young boy and having a huge crush on, you know, the captain of the football team at school. It's about you know it's about what you do in secret, but with somebody that you can never tell anyone about. And so I've used this music video to, to tell that story.
0: I think it's fair to say that your third album, MF, is certainly more adult than your other two in terms of style, it's a lot rockier, but also with the themes as well. There's one song particularly on there that really stands out to me and that is Soldiers. Could you talk a bit about that? I think everybody, no matter of your sexuality
2: or gender, remembers your first intense relationship when you were younger. and for me, this is, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd experimented with and done fun things with and had sex with guys. But uh, this was the first person that I actually had a relationship with. I would actually say it was my boyfriend. And um, it's funny, isn't it? Because... Time is so different when you're a teenager. So we were probably only together for about four to six months. But at the time, it was like six years, and it was so intense. And like every like emotion was like insane. And like they didn't call me back at the right time. And like what did it mean? Are we breaking up? You know, is that kind of thing? Like really heightened emotion. And it was wild. And it was very horny. And it was very fun. And it was very intense. Then when it was ended, uh, I was an absolute wreck, and I was like traumatized. And like I'm never gonna find another gay relationship ever again. And like it. It was was a really, really trying and difficult time. And then we kind of lost touch. But as I say in the song, you never forget your first uh, boyfriend. And um, we reconnected again um, in around 2012 and started becoming friends. And it was lovely to see him and catch up in his life and how he was. And then um, really sadly and tragically, he died in um, 2015. You know, everything comes flooding back and I just wanted to do a tribute to, as I say in the song, to my first boyfriend who I was in love with. I was obsessed with. He was a very special and interesting creature. I then was hurt by who I hated. And I was such complex emotions, but every one of them was extreme. When somebody who you've been intimate with and had a really intimate, close relationship with dies, I think it's incredibly well. I found. it, It was the first person who I'd who I'd. I had a sexual relationship with who passed away. And I, it just brought up so many intense feelings. I found it an incredibly difficult and challenging emotional experience to get through because you've had a physical nex-
0: connection with another human being that no longer exists in that form. And it really is a, a smashing song, Soldiers. I recommend people listen to it. And Matt, you've written a, uh, a really quite moving legacy piece there. Thank you.
1: i'm so grateful we reconnected again before the end there will always be a special place
0: So Matt, we've spoken on the podcast already about the importance of being seen in our art, being seen in the world around us as queer people. How does it make you feel as an artist knowing that you are helping Mm. that visibility? I do it because, you know, I'm an artist and I enjoy and I love making music, but
2: you want it to connect and you want people to, to hear you and to feel heard and to feel seen. So when you hear that that has happened, it hits right in the heart and it feels really, it feels really good and it feels really warm. I love hearing from people, you know, on social media or whatever via email, um, saying kind of things similar to what you've just said, because it makes, it makes me feel that what I've done is worth
0: something. And how do you feel your 15-year-old self would connect with your catalogue? <laughs> i love that question i mean look without without wanting to
2: sound conceited i think 50 year old matt would be obsessed with my catalog <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> i mean as that's a, little a perfect bit, answer <laughs> i mean yeah he would be obsessed because look i was desperate as i said earlier um at 15 years old i was desperate to hear songs about queer life uh sung by queer people I, I made these songs for 15 year old me. You know, this is this is what I wrote them for. I when I made Not Thinking Straight, I was I supposed thinking at the time. This is the album I wanted to hear at 15 years old. This is the album that I wanted to hug and jump up and down and scream about. So it wasn't there for me. So I'm gonna make it. <laughs> I could be like, oh, you know, he'd be like cool whatever, but no, I 15 year old me would be like, this
1: is the best album I've ever
2: heard. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: One of my main ambitions for this podcast is to introduce audiences to new queer music. And I do think the best way to do that often is by a specific song. So what do you think would be the good gateway song into your catalogue?
2: Hmm. I mean, I guess I'm going to have to go with a a Radio Freddy Pop song, I suppose. Um, It's the... It's it was my fifth single, but it's the opening track of my debut album. It sets out my mission statement, I suppose, as an artist. It says who I am, where I've come from, the journey I went through being told, you know, to eradicate all the gay content from my songs. And it's it's it's, I suppose, an acerbic tongue in cheek um, critique on certain music industry executives and a and r men who constantly told me and i'm sure many other artists to remove all the gay content from their songs and what the song does is it, it 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 sets the scene and it's from it changes perspective it's from the perspective of them talking to the artists but then halfway through my voice comes out and i basically say uh fuck you i'm gay I'm open, I'm proud, I'm happy to be, and this is who I am as an artist, and nothing you do or say is gonna stop me being me.
1: And you never play a leading man if you let on your
0: Matt Fischel, thank you so much for coming on this very first episode of In the Key of Q. Thank you. It's been a real privilege. Genuinely it was your music that helped inspire this podcast. <laughs> so thank you so, um, so much. Oh, it's been amazing.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You to a hit
1: record for the radio. Are you never gonna get it? The kids already know.
0: You've been listening to In the Key of Q. You can find Matt's music on the usual streaming platforms and check out his forever home at matofficial.com. The opening theme is by Paul Ianidu at unstoppablemonsters.com. Check out the show notes for links, including a Spotify playlist to complement this episode. The podcast's home is at inthekeyofq.com. And over on our Patreon page, you can find exclusive content. Many thanks to Kajun Canfer and Murray Lang. Special thanks to Tom Goss at tomgossmusic.com. You can hear our full conversation later in this series. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. This episode is produced by me, Dan Hall, for Pup Media Consultancy. See you next Tuesday. Next time on In the Key of Q. Being black is already like... I don't consider it a deficit,
2: but like in societal terms, you're already a born deficit. Like you already have that. So
0: adding a gay label on top of that, you're just like asking yourself for just like a forever ass whooping from the world. That's Ty McKinney. Next time on In the Key of Q. I just
1: gotta know.